Welcome to the Just Solutions podcast from Free Speech TV. I'm Maeve Conran. This week, the Supreme Court is considering a case that could upend the Environmental Protection Agency's ability to protect our water from toxic pollution. This is part of a wave of efforts to undermine environmental regulations in the court. The decision in the case will have far-reaching consequences for the Clean Water Act. Our guest today is Sam Sankar, Senior Vice President for Programmes at Earth Justice. They have filed an amicus brief to the Supreme Court in the case Sackett versus the EPA. Their clients are 18 Native American tribes who want water protections in place. Sankar says we need judges who recognise the value of our federal environmental laws, the importance of sound science and the proper role of the judiciary. From Free Speech TV, Just Solutions. Sam, it's great to have you with us. Thank you for being our guest today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So are we overstating it that this particular case being considered by the Supreme Court could really upend the Clean Water Act and environmental regulations around water as we know it? No, it's it's not an overstatement. The Supreme Court uh, has been interested in the scope of the Clean Water Act for a long time. And this is certainly a case that I think it's fair to say it took in order to, to make some statements about that. Well, let's talk a little bit about the case, Sackett versus the EPA. It's about a specific aspect of the Clean Water Act. So what exactly is at stake here? What is being considered? Sure. The Clean Water Act, the text of the Clean Water Act says that EPA is supposed to be, EPA and other federal agencies are supposed to, supposed to be protecting the waters of the United States. And that term is very broad. And so the question is, what exactly does it cover? The the for for almost 50 years now the federal government has uh, taken the position that waters of the united states includes wetlands both adjacent to waterways and also wetlands that affect waterways because wetlands as you know protect waterways by filtering sediments dealing with pollution providing a habitat for fish and insects and aquatic life and the question in the case is whether or not and what kind of wetlands are subject to the act's protection so I know that um, back in 2015, the Trump administration, or rather back in 2015, the EPA issued sort of, a, I don't want to say a decree, you can correct me on the correct language, defining what WOTUS is, waters of the United States. And that was challenged by the Trump administration. And then Earth Justice stepped in there, also representing Native American tribes. So take us back to 2015. What was What is that WOTUS declaration? So we've had a series of WOTUS declarations over the course uh, of many years, ever since the statute was issued. And consistently, every administration, including the Trump administration, has concluded that the definition of waters of the United States, WOTUS, covers wetlands and covers wetlands even when they are separated to some degree by the nearby waters. The Trump administration back uh, late, in, uh, late in its term issued regulations that offered a fairly narrow description of it, again, including some wetlands, and Earth Justice uh, challenged those regulations in court uh, successfully. What exactly are wetlands and their important function in the environment? Sure. Wetlands are regions of the uh, of our geography that are characterized by the regular presence of waters. So you can think of things like marshes uh, as being a classic wetland. 
Um, wetlands are areas that, that may not be navigable, like you couldn't necessarily paddle a canoe or, or pull a boat across them, but they're inextricably intertwined hydrologically, ecologically, and environmentally with associated surface waters. So the main thing you need to understand is that they are deeply intertwined with surface waters. And if you want to protect surface water quality, you can't neglect wetlands protection because once you neglect wetlands protection, people can dump into and fill wetlands, they can pollute wetlands, and that pollution inevitably makes it downstream because those wetlands are connected to the surface waters. In regard to this particular case being considered by the Supreme Court, what exactly is at stake here? And who are some of the political and legal uh, players at play? Earth Justice, of course, issued an amicus brief in support of water regulation and water protection. But talk about the Pacific Legal Foundation and some of the other folks that are uh, there supporting the Sackets, this couple who are challenging the EPA. Right. Well, um, first and foremost, we have the Sacketts themselves. The Sacketts would like to paint themselves as fairly sympathetic, innocent landowners. But um, what the record shows is that they are actually the owners of excavation companies. They're well aware of the rules and regulations concerning wetlands protections. They bought a lot that EPA and the Army Corps of Engineers had already determined was subject to EPA's wetland regulations. Um, and they knew that they could have sought a permit to develop on the land anyway. That's a very important thing. Nobody was saying that they couldn't do any development. They merely needed to get a permit. Rather than getting that permit, they actually brought in 1,400 cubic yards of gravel with their own company and had their company fill the land in. It was during the middle of that filling operation that neighbors complained and EPA showed up and said, hey, we're not, we're not so sure that this is okay. So at that point, the Sacketts um, at, at presumably needed legal help and they got the support of the Pacific Legal Foundation. And Pacific Legal Foundation is a uh, a legal organization that is funded by right. I think it's fair to say by right wing and industry interests. They get a lot of donations from corporate entities, uh, and that uh, allows them to represent people like the Sacketts um, in the in in a in a campaign, a legal campaign that is relevant to the Sacketts, but of course much more broadly relevant to the industry interests that support organizations like the Pacific Legal Foundation. And I think that's worth mentioning, you know, the, the other entities at play here, because this will have broad ramifications. It goes well beyond the Sackett's personal case. Right. The Sackett's own less than an acre. But the, the reason that they're getting all the support, not just from the Pacific Legal Foundation, but from amicus briefs from dozens of industry groups, is because there's 45 million acres of wetlands at stake. The Sackett's position in this case would cut off protection to those 45 million acres of wetlands and would addition, in addition change the way EPA is able to protect smaller ephemeral streams, that is streams that run only seasonally in parts of the year. Uh, so it, it, it's of huge importance. So, and, and that again is why the uh, Sackets are attracting this much support from right-wing and industry interests. Who are the tribes you're supporting and why are they concerned? Sure, we're representing a, a group of 18 Native American tribes in this uh, matter. And the reason why the tribes are concerned is, well, for the same reason that many of us are concerned. First of all, they rely on water quality for their ways of life. We all rely on water. And in many cases, tribes rely especially heavily on the water supplies in their in their regions for fishing rights, uh, for subsistence, just for drinking water, um, and for their way of life. And in many cases, tribes don't necessarily have the same legal powers 
to protect themselves that say states do. So they have particular concerns in that regard. And finally, tribes also have treaty rights. In many cases, they were forced onto reservations or uh, forced into treaties. And at the, at the very least, those treaties and reservations were supposed to guarantee them um, an environment in which they could conduct their, in which they could live their way of life or, or continue fishing as they were historically able to. But if you can't protect the wetlands and up, upstream waters of the places where they live and hunt and fish, it's going to compromise their ability to actually exercise those treaty rights or to live on the lands that they have in the way they're accustomed to. And this is such an important issue because water around indigenous rights is absolutely a huge issue that's completely underaddressed. And I know the Navajo Nation are one of the tribes that you're representing. And if you just look at water in terms of the context of the Navajo Nation, 30% of the community of the Navajo Nation don't have access to clean drinking water. I mean, this is not an isolated case. It's not just about wetlands in terms of Navajo Nation and water rights. I mean, I mean talk a little bit about that, about how the indigenous communities, the tribes themselves, are already battling a huge uphill battle when it comes to water issues. Sure. A good example is the, the Fond du Lac tribe that we represent. Uh, and 50%, over 50% of their reserved lands are wetlands. So a huge amount of just their home is wetlands that would lose protection if the Sackett's interpretation goes, uh, goes the way that they would like. In addition, these communities are facing threats from upstream mining and upstream uh, industrial development that they are currently able to hold at bay to some degree through legal actions based on the Clean Water Act. Among other things, they can challenge permitting decisions when the Army Corps of Engineers or EPA says you can develop in this sensitive area. The tribes can go in there and argue about whether those those permitting decisions were correct. And at the very least, all of those permitting processes give the tribes the opportunity to identify their concerns and make sure that people are aware of the impacts of what would happen on their way of life. So if you remove wetlands protections, you're not only removing the actual protections for the for the for these places that where the tribes live, but also for the upland and up uh, upstream areas that affect them. This isn't the first case on the docket of the Supreme Court when it comes to environmental deregulation. I mean, earlier in the summer, uh, the Supreme Court ruled around the EPA's ability to regulate emissions and uh, really dealing a blow to the Clean Air Act. Talk a little bit about your concerns about the current makeup of the Supreme Court and its attitude right now to environmental regulation and consequently deregulation. Sure. I think it's it's fair to say that there's been a long-term campaign um, by industry interests to make the court a, uh, a receptive audience for deregulatory arguments. The current bench that we have on the court was picked um, in significant in significant ways for hostility to federal regulatory interests, or at least skepticism to federal regulatory power, um, for uh, their interest in private property rights over public uh, env environmental concerns. And this is ground zero for a lot of those legal deregulatory legal philosophies is the environment, because polluting industries, industries in general, don't like to be regulated. They they know that when you regulate in the public interest, it may affect their bottom line. And so they are always going to push against those regulations and try to limit them. It is natural. I say this all the time. We shouldn't be surprised when extractive industries uh, and corporations fight against regulations. That is, that is what they do. Um, but we just have to be aware that we need courts and we need our laws to protect people 
from the natural behavior of corporations. It does seem that so much uh, that governs our that governs our society when it comes to healthcare, women's right to choose, the environment, it's playing out in the Supreme Court. Is that an indication that our laws are working, that they can either be challenged or upheld? Or is this an indication that, you know what, we need more regulations so that we're not constantly having the courts actually be the ones that are deciding so much of of what's so important to us right now? Sure. Um, Well, I think in America, Um, we have a political process that isn't working as well as many of us would like. And that plays out in a couple of different ways. One is that um, Congress isn't writing a whole lot of new laws of any kind to really address some of the emerging problems we have, whether it's climate change or racial injustice or or anything else. And the second thing is, uh, on the flip side of it, the industry interest that would love Congress to rewrite the laws to be more deregulatory is finding that it just can't get any traction for that kind of legislative change. The public broadly supports environmental protections. So if you can't get Congress to rewrite the laws and you can't persuade the agencies that the science supports weakening the laws, and the industries haven't been able to do that either, what's your last opportunity? Well, maybe you can get the courts to rewrite the laws. And so that's what I think we're seeing is that the industry interests that are at play here have uh, have engaged in a long-term campaign to make the courts a favorable venue for themselves, and are now asking the courts to do what they have not been able to, to get politically, which is changes in the laws. You're listening to the Just Solutions podcast from Free Speech TV. I'm Maeve Conran. Our guest today is Sam Sankar, Senior Vice President for Programs at Earth Justice. They have filed an amicus brief to the Supreme Court in the case Sackett versus the Environmental Protection Agency. It's a case that could drastically reduce the government's ability to protect our water from toxic pollution. You can find past episodes of Just Solutions at our website, freespeech.org. And don't forget, subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. You mentioned there, Sam, about these industry interests, and and we spoke earlier about that when it comes to um, this particular case, Sackett versus the EPA. Um, And I've heard it being said, I think, probably by Earth Justice, that what we're seeing really right now is a coordinated push by industry polluters. Um, And it's not just at the Supreme Court, as you said, it's when, you know, we look at what's playing out in Congress as well. Expand a little bit more on that, because I think when we hear about cases, say this one at the Supreme Court or other things, we often don't look at the bigger picture and see the coordination when it comes to who's behind this? I mean, did the Sackets go out and find these organizations to support them? Or are these industry interests out looking for these kind of cases that could upend these federal protections? Well, I think um, it, it may not be that individual you know, industrial companies are out there looking for them. But what they've done is they've funded a network of activist lawyering groups that are that are actively looking for these cases and that are identifying cases like the or families like the Sacketts as uh, as a as potential vehicles for the claims that they want to make because of course the the case is less sympathetic if it's if it's Exxon coming in and saying hey we're trying to fill in a wetland why can't we fill in the wetland and that's why it's 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 appealing to to bring the case on behalf of uh, of individual 
people who are our property owners. Now, I think it's telling that the individual people they found are are also owners of a large excavation company, people who actually are, are well aware of, uh, likely well aware of what they're doing. Um, but the industry interests that you're talking about are the ones that um, that routinely deal with dredging and filling and polluting uh, wetlands. And again, uh, these are industries like the oil and gas industry, um, the mining industry, and agricultural interests that routinely would like more freedom to pollute, fill in, and degrade wetlands and the nearby water bodies. It is uh, that is part of their business model, and the less regulation they have to face in doing it, the more profit they make. What ultimately could the Supreme Court decide in this? Is it like a yes or a no situation? Is there something in between? I mean, what should we be anticipating? Albeit a decision isn't expected until next year, but what could actually come down from the court? Sure. What's interesting is that the Sacketts and their industry allies have asked the court to write into law a fairly bright line test for what counts as a wetland or a protected water. And that bright line is, look, look if you can't, uh, if that wetland isn't directly touching the water and isn't visually indistinguishable from the nearby water, then it can't be protected. And what we saw at argument was a lot of the members of the court even some of the conservative members recognize that that interpretation doesn't really square with the text of the law that Congress wrote in 1972, with amendments that came out in 1977, and with seven consecutive presidential administrations' interpretations of that law. So what we're going to find out is whether or not those judges who asked good questions at oral arguments and expressed some skepticism of that very aggressive bright line test, will see whether their judicial instincts are what actually lead them to the, to the decision that they make, or whether it's more of a deregulatory agenda and some legal philosophy that ends, uh, ends up driving their decision making. That's what we should be looking for, is do we get a bright line test driven by a legal philosophy, or a more nuanced test that reflects science and the difficulty of drawing bright lines in the real world. Now, we've spoken about what's at stake specifically in this case, waterways and these, you know, waters as defined under waters of the US, that uh, kind of decision by the EPA. But are there other waterways at, at stake here? I mean, is there an even further knock on effect? Will this embolden other entities to come and challenge other parts of EPA regulation around water protection? Well, I certainly think that we have a court right now that many observers rightly uh, understand as being very receptive to deregulatory arguments. So I think that no matter what happens in this case, we're going to see a continuing parade of requests to the court to cut back uh, and reinterpret existing environmental laws more narrowly to uh, reduce the the discretion and latitude that uh, that our expert agencies have to implement those laws and to elevate uh, quote private property rights over public health and environmental protections and i think it's always worth reminding people about what these acts actually do because we talk about them in such broad terms clean air act clean water act it's almost this ubiquitous entity that's just there but if we remember what happened or what the situation was before these actually went into effect i mean what exactly has been the successes i know it's not a perfect 
you know, re- package of regulations, but there have been some very considerable successes when it comes to water. What does the Clean Air, or excuse me, Clean Water Act do? Sure. Well, before the Clean Water Act was passed in 1972, we had literally rivers catching on fire. We were losing 450,000 acres of wetlands every year. And it was, it, Congress itself recognized that this was a completely uh, unacceptable situation. Congress had tried to let states take the lead in water regulation, and it had just miserably failed, and Congress acknowledged as much. So what the Clean Water Act does is it sets a goal of zero discharge of pollutants to our nation nation's waterways. And then it basically says, if you want to pollute the water, in order to get us to that zero pollution goal, you have to get permission before you let any pollutant out into the water. And as part of that permission, which we call a permit, we're going to put in limits on the way that you can pollute, require you to treat what you're doing. Or if you want to fill in a wetland, require you potentially to compensate for that damage, either through construction practices or by restoring wetlands elsewhere. So that permitting process, which is the heart of the Clean Water Act, is what allows the agencies to evaluate the actions of industries and modify those actions so as to reduce or eliminate their impact on the environment. That's the heart of the Clean Water Act, these permitting requirements. So when industries are saying we want to get rid of the permitting requirements, they're eliminating the agency's ability to consider activities and regulate them. This is all happening at a time when we are seeing diminishing water supply. The Colorado River is in crisis. It's over allocated, has been since the compact was established. But of course, now we're living through the climate crisis as well. And very often we're having these conversations about water quantity and diminishing water supply. But Water quality is really at the heart of what we're talking about today and pollution and protection of these water spaces and waterways from polluters. But what is the intersection? I mean, what is the connection between water quality and water quantity? And why should we be paying attention to all of it at the same time? Sure, they all go together and wetlands are actually a perfect example of how and why. Wetlands, uh, both wetlands address both water quality and water quantity. So wetlands filter pollutants, control settlements. They do a lot to improve the water quality of nearby waters, but they also act as critical buffers for water flow. So in flood times, your wetlands absorb the water and reduce the flooding of nearby water bodies. And in dry spells, the wetlands let go of that water and maintain flows in our rivers and lakes and streams. So protecting wetlands is critical to protecting both water quality and quantity. What's interesting is that many, while the Sacketts really did not want to talk about that, many of the justices of the court, including several of the conservative justices, acknowledge the critical role that wetlands play and the difficulty of protecting water bodies without protecting wetlands. I think when we talk about water issues and wetlands and rivers, it's a perfect example of why federal regulation is so crucial and not just having regulation at a state level, because, of course, rivers flow through. They don't recognize state boundaries or governmental boundaries. And so you need to have these broad federal regulations. And when so much of the conversation is, well, we leave it up to states to regulate it, you cannot do it in cases of natural entities, essentially, because As we said, rivers don't know state boundaries. Yeah, there's a couple of reasons why state regulation isn't an adequate solution. You've named a couple of them already. Uh, You know, one of them is there are states downstream from other states. So if you're a if you're an upstream state, 
you can let that pollution go out of your boundaries and not worry about it. And it's really going to affect your neighbors, not you. So your incentives to control the people who are inside of your boundaries are actually lower than they should be. The other thing is there's this concern about a race to the bottom. Um, oftentimes, we know that, uh, that states are competing to attract investment from industries. Uh, and it's always going to be tempting to say, we'll regulate a little less in order to get you to put that factory or that mine or that pipeline through our state rather than through the neighboring state. So that's a reason why states are always, you know, there's always a temptation to race to the bottom, as they say. And putting a federal floor of regulation in is really critical. So this is, as we said before the Supreme Court, they've already heard arguments, but a decision isn't likely to come down before 2023. So is there anything that people who are concerned about this can do right now? I think the number one thing to do is to educate yourself about the issues and to be aware of them. Because, uh, first of all, um, you know, the people assume that the Supreme Court doesn't pay any attention to what's going on in the real world. And I do think that uh, that broad movements do matter to the court and that the court is not actually blind to what's going on in the conversation in the public. Just as importantly, if the Supreme Court tries to limit the reach of the Clean Water Act by reinterpreting some of the longstanding language, there is an opportunity for Congress to take action and to and to actually reinstate a broader understanding of the Clean Water Act. And that's something that people should be prepared to push for through their legislators and representatives. And this idea of educating themselves, I think a crucial part of this is that people need to be educated on, you know, a major component of this that we touched on what's happening with the tribes and water quality, because this is much broader than this particular case. I know Earth Justice has worked very closely with various different tribes on this. You know, how can people weigh in on this, even outside of this particular case, but water access, the fact that so many different tribes have such limited access to clean running water, let alone the pollution of waterways that's at stake with this? How can people educate themselves on this? Because these are not topics. These are not stories that are often being put out there, certainly into mainstream media. Sure. Well, we try to put a lot of the stories of our partners on our website and make sure that we communicate those out very well. Um, one of Earth Justice's important roles in partnering with our organ with our with uh, the tribes that we work with is not just to represent them in court, but to elevate their voices and make sure that their stories do get heard. So if you are someone who's interested in these issues, dig a little deeper, go beyond the front page of the, of the big newspapers or the, the, or the, you know, the, the top level Twitter feed that you get and read some of the stories that Earth Justice and the tribes themselves are putting out there and learn some of these things. And then communicate that to the people you know. There is no substitute for making sure that there are broad movements in support of tribes, tribal water rights, and water quality. Legislators pay attention to that. And finally, vote. You gotta vote. Make sure that your, your elected representatives are aware of where you stand and that you're voting your values. And just in terms of voting, uh, you know, we talked earlier about the need to have robust federal regulations, that state regulations aren't enough. However, there are a lot of things happening when it comes to environmental regulation and deregulation at a state level, too. So albeit federal regulations are important, I think people need to also, I'm sure you would agree, pay attention to what's happening locally at a community level and at a state level, too, when it comes to environmental regulation. Absolutely. There's a great deal of progress that can be made at the state level and a great deal of damage that can be done at the state level as well. Um, and I, I think paying attention to all levels of government is really important for anybody who is active and committed 
on environmental and justice issues. In addition, I think people need to be aware of the courts. We've talked about the state government, we've talked about federal government, we've talked about voting, but people need to recognize the importance that the courts play in environmental protection. If we have a solid Congress and good laws and good regulations, that will only help us so much if the courts that we're going to, to bring life to those laws aren't necessarily seeing the value of those broad environmental laws to the general public. Well, Sam, thank you very much for being our guest today on Just Solutions. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Sam Samkar is the Senior Vice President for Programmes at Earth Justice. They have filed an amicus brief to the Supreme Court in the case Sackett versus the Environmental Protection Agency. Their clients are 18 Native American tribes. You can find out more at earthjustice.org. You've been listening to the Just Solutions podcast from Free Speech TV. Watch past episodes at freespeech.org. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And join the conversation online at Free Speech, hashtag Just Solutions. For the Just Solutions podcast, I'm Maeve Conran.